Our friends from Healthy Bud just launched a new exciting product and our dog Zippo has been absolutely obsessed. Their mini training treats are packed with superfoods like lion's mane, reishi, and salmon oil to support brain health and with over 500 treats per bag and just one calorie per treat, you can rest assured that you're providing guilt-free taste and nutrition in every bite. To grab a bag yourself or a few, head over to us.healthybud.co and use our code FP20 to save 20% on your first order. podcast. As you know, this is where we have conversations about the most commonly requested dog behavioral and dog training issues. So Tanya, what is the dog issue or dog behavioral issue that we'll be talking about today? Today, we'll be talking about fear in dogs. Fear in dogs, uh, otherwise known as reactivity. Are they the same thing? Not necessarily. When we um, speak or think of a reactive dog, we probably imagine a dog who is barking, lunging, um, vocalizing in other ways or pulling towards a trigger. And when a dog is fearful, it's not necessary that they will be reacting. So the dog may be just fearful, trying to move away or displaying body language that tells us that the dog is fearful, but is not necessarily reacting towards the trigger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know the word aggression gets thrown around a lot when people talk about fear and reactivity. What is the difference? Is reactivity and aggression the same thing? Most commonly, we look at reactivity as um, either caused by, let's say, frustration. The dog can't get to the other dog, and this may be causing them to have a reaction. Or reactivity may be caused by the dog wanting distance away from the scary stimulus. And by having a reaction, they've learned that it makes either the scary dog move away or they will get the chance to be removed from the situation. So a distance increasing behavior that has worked for the dog. We see aggression in a much smaller percentage of the time. It's when the dog is actually wanting to cause harm and damage to the trigger. So to us, it might look like aggression because maybe they're barking really loud, maybe lunging uh, at the other dog, um, but their intent might not be to hurt. It's just to say, hey, get away from me. Uh, I'm big and scary. But th what they actually want is for that thing to go away, not for them to interact with that dog. Yeah, I've had many clients with reactive dogs who are very friendly when they go to the dog park. So people often tell me, I just wish I could drop the leash <laughs> when my dog is reacting. And, you know, he'll be totally fine because he can go and greet the dog and there won't be that issue. But since they're attached to a leash and they're already displaying those behaviors, you can be like, hey, my dog is friendly. Can we just say hi? So great. I mean, we're really excited to have our guest today and we'll, we'll get to some questions that we got from Instagram from uh, people that have fearful or reactive dogs. Uh, we'll get to address those questions with our guest uh, at the end of the podcast. So thank you so much for everyone who submitted some questions. So let me introduce our guest today is Debbie Jacobs. She is a certified professional dog trainer and a registered behavior technician. She's the author of three books, uh, A Guide to Living with and Training a Fearful Dog, Does My Dog Need Prozac, and a children's book, Find Finn. She's the owner and creator of the FearfulDogs.com website, 
a respected resource for information about working with dogs struggling with fear-based behavior challenges. She also hosts the Walking in the Woods with Dogs podcast that can be found on most podcast platforms. Debbie also runs webinars and seminars about behavior and training. She offers consultations to owners, rescue groups, shelters, and foster caregivers. She lives in Vermont with her husband and her dog, Nibbles. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Debbie Jacobs to the podcast. Thank you very much. Would love, love, love just to get a little bit of background about Sunny. So in your book, A Guide to Living with and Training a Fearful Dog, you introduce Sunny, uh, a Border Collie mixed rescue who we come to learn is the subject of your book. Could you tell our audience, um, you know, who Sunny is, how you met Sunny, and how your experience with Sunny became the foundational basis of your book? Sure. Oh, thank you. I love talking about my my boy Sunny. Um, I went down to volunteer with uh, the manager of our local shelter down in Mississippi after hurricanes Katrina and Rita. That was back in 2005. And we went to uh, one of the sites that were set up to take in the dogs and other animals that were being pulled from homes and the streets after the hurricanes. And a piece of the background is I had a border collie. You know, this is how things work, right? You have a dog and you love that dog. And then any dog who you see who kind of reminds you of that dog, you often feel yep. a bit of an attachment for. So while I was at the the rescue site where there were just probably a hundred or so animals, a couple of days before I was leaving, a group of dogs were brought in to the site that had been confiscated or basically rescued from a hoarding site. So there all kinds of things come out of the woodwork um, when there are tragedies and catastrophes and disasters. And some are good things and some are not such good things that come out. We saw a lot of people who really wanted to help animals and do good things. And then there were people who were, in effect, hoarders. Or some may have been brokers of dogs. They may have been selling dogs. Mm -hmm. Sonny was at a hoarder's compound. She had, at the time that he was pulled from her place, 477 dogs. So I got up one morning and a whole bunch of dogs were new that had been driven in um, overnight. and, And there was this black and white dog, as you can see from the cover of the book. And, and when I went in to meet him, uh, he was very fearful. And I was not a trainer at the time. So I didn't really, this was not a red flag for me, as it should have been. And I went in, I sat in his pen with him, and he just never couldn't approach me, couldn't approach me. And I thought, ah, well, you know, he'll be fine. He'll come, send him to me in Vermont, which is what I told the folks to do, transport him to me. And he'll be in paradise and everything will be fine. So he was uh, transported to Vermont. And my goal was to find a home for him. I didn't need another dog. I didn't want another dog. But I thought I will help him. And so Sonny came to live with me and he was flat out terrified. He landed in a corner of our living room and couldn't move for weeks. I mean, couldn't move. Stayed there um, just terrified, absolutely terrified of me, of being inside a house. He was probably somewhere around a year old, maybe upwards of maybe an adolescent, young, little young, bit younger, but he was full grown. And that was that. He came to live with me and I, all of the things that I thought I knew to help a dog, as you know, we like to say, dogs do not suffer here, um, weren't working. And I recognized that I needed to learn more about dogs. Sonny was not the first dog. I had been fostering dogs, um, uh, Satos, which are Puerto Rican street dogs. I'd had about a hundred of those come up through my home and, you know, we'd found homes for them. And so I thought I knew what I was doing. (laughs) Well, I didn't really, until I met Sonny, understand not only what I didn't know about training, but what I also didn't know about what happens 
to animals, not just dogs, but animals that live through and survive uh, what he did, which I assume is basically living in a cage in a pen outside uh, with 476 other dogs, but not getting any good interactions with people. So that, Sonny, that, and then the rest was history. I, I recognized that there was no good home for him because nobody wants a dog that you can't interact with, that's terrified of you. You know, fortunately for me, he didn't behave in an aggressive way, which saves many of these dogs' lives. I mean, it's, it, it, they may be no more or less fearful than the dog who behaves aggressively. They just respond differently. Um, but he did not respond aggressively towards me. So, of course, that made it easier for me to decide that I was going to keep him and work with him. So then that was that. Then I started on the journey looking for information on how to help dogs that were basically this debilitated by their fear. Well, I mean, that, mu that must have been such a hard decision for you. I mean, you were obviously very confident with fostering so many dogs. Having a border collie yourself, you probably went in with a certain level of confidence. And even then, after all the dogs that you know, you've cared for, um, you met a dog that you didn't know what to do with that that must have been an incredibly hard decision for you even though you knew that Sonny would not be able to be taken care of by someone else taking on that responsibility must have been a, a tough choice for you i i suppose it, it at the time it you know fortunately it was a time in my life when i was not necessarily going to be going uh away for any extended amounts of time even though i did travel a lot at the time um but, you know, I think there's certain there's a certain amount of ignorance is bliss. You know, you you just keep thinking, uh -huh. you know, how long is this going to last? You know, this can't he can't do this forever. He can't behave this way forever. There's that feeling of, well, one day he's just going to recognize that he's in paradise, that life is good. Nobody's going to hurt him. And he's just going to be like the other dogs in the house because mm -hmm. I at the time I did have other dogs and and so I didn't recognize that that isn't necessarily the way it happens for all the dogs it does happen for some dogs that are just maybe going through a transition and they're just really trying to sort out their new surroundings but they have a foundation of behavior to, to draw mm -hmm. from they have a foundation of skills that they can draw from. They just have to learn how to apply them in a new situation. Sonny didn't have any of them. He didn't know how to be in a house. He didn't know how to walk through a doorway. He didn't, he didn't know how to approach a person. He was just uh, basically had the skills of a dog who had lived in a cage, in a kennel, with a bunch of other dogs. That was basically his skills, his skill level. And for that, he was pretty good. He was my, he was my player. He was the dog that anytime I had a, a, a dog around that needed somebody to play with, uh, just Sonny was the, Sonny was the dog. So real good with other dogs. So the question I guess will be, how long did it take until you started to see some signs of him coming out of that space of fear and you know, or, or since, shut down. You know, or since you were making any progress at all. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was months. I, I certainly would not recommend that anybody do what I ended up doing with him because at the time I live in a rural area. It's, it's easy. Uh, I didn't have a fence in yard at the time and I could see that he was good with my other dogs and I did actually start um, taking him outside uh, initially um, on a long line uh, but the, the, even the challenge with that was that he was terrified of, of not being able to flee because that's what he would really like to do is to get away. So it was really months and months and I it was probably at least a year before I could actually cue him and get him to come to me when I asked him to, so that it was basically 
you know, I'd say, hey, Sonny, come here. And he would look at me and go, yes, I'll be right there and come running over to me. <laughs> um, and, you know, we did, he, I was able to get behaviors from him, but a lot of it was um, having to kind of make it up as I went, which was to just allow him a lot of freedom um, and then taking advantage of opportunities uh, when he would uh, approach me. He, uh, because I had the other dog and he liked other dogs and my other border collie, um, who we were his seventh home. This was another rescue dog. Um, and we were home number seven and he had just amazing skills with people but somebody had taught him how to catch frisbees and he loved catching frisbees and it turned out that Sonny mm -hmm. really loved stealing frisbees um from the <laughs> other dog and so mm -hmm. if Sonny could he would get the frisbee and you know kind of run off with it um and hide it somewhere uh but then if we again I had lots of frisbees uh so we would play and so I was starting to get behavior I was starting to get uh, that sort of join the, you know, come on and join the team, buddy, uh, we're playing. So I did a lot of play with him. And then eventually, you know, that progressed. And um... Um, early on in your book, you talk about changing your own views, beliefs, and expectations regarding the dog that you get. You were expecting one thing and you got another thing. Like, you know, you say that changing your own beliefs, views, and expectations may be the first step the owner of a fearful dog needs to take. Like, I would love to understand kind of what you meant by that, especially in light of the fact that, you know, you even openly admit that Sonny was not the sort of companion that you were looking for. So for a lot of parents of reactive, fearful dogs, that clash of the life that they imagined that they were going to have with this dog that they finally chose, and then the dog that winds up in their home, that could be quite startling. And so I would love to learn how you made that progression for yourself. Sure. Thank you. That's, um, it's a very good question. I think one way to talk about it is the more you know, the better you can do what it is that you need to do. So part of the problem that I recognized was that I really did not understand how to help this particular animal learn the things that he needed to learn. Because, so when I talk about changing how you think about the, the dog, rather than this, well, he's just going to come around or he's going to get over his fears, he's going to come out of his shell, all of the, the ways that we tend to think about behavior. They don't really help very much when you're trying to basically teach a dog, come to me when I ask you to, or walk out the door, or even harder, walk inside the door. I mean, basically, these are just skills. Mm -hmm. These are just behaviors. Mm -hmm. It's just, and I, and I remember at some point, I thought to myself, if I what would make my life easier with this dog? Because right now it's not easy. I used to let him out and before I had a fence, I would have to sit outside and try to catch him. And um, if I, I didn't like to leave a long line on him because he'd get tangled and he wasn't the sort of dog who would chew the line. I mean, there are some dogs I've had that if they got tangled on something, they would just chew right through the long line. They chew through leashes and they could free themselves. Sonny wouldn't do that. If I had him and he got tangled on something, he would just sit there. And I recognized, boy, if he runs off and I don't know where he is, he's going to get tangled on something and who knows. So I can't do that um, with him. So, and, and I live in Vermont. It's cold here in the wintertime. He came to me in December. And I thought, well, mm -hmm. what, uh, you know, what would help me? What would make my life easier? What skills what behaviors, if he learned them, I could say, you know what, buddy, I could live with you. <laughs> I could live with you. And I thought about them. And I thought, well, come when I call you. I could live with the dog if, you know, you come when I call you. Um, you can get in and out of the car on your own. That would be helpful so I don't have to pick you up. He was 50 pounds. Not that I couldn't pick up 50 pounds, but I'd rather have a dog who just on their own could get in and out of the car and come in and out of the house. The, those were, I thought, jeepers, like, is that really asking for too much from a dog? You know, I don't need you to, I don't need you to do agility. I don't need you to, you know, sleep in the bed with me. I don't need you to 
um, do anything else. Just when I call you, come to me, come in and out of the house when I ask you to. And if you can get in and out of the car so we can go places, I can take you to the vet and all those things without. uh, And then I recognized, well, these are just behaviors. And how do you train behavior? Well, you get the behavior and you reinforce it. You pay them, you reward them for it. And if you do that enough, you will get more of the behavior that you're after. Mm -hmm. And so I went from being kind of a hobby trainer because I had other dogs and I'd done other training classes. I'd done practically any training class that was offered um, in my community that were offered by, and I'm very lucky that we have trainers who use food to train, who use positive reinforcement to train. Uh, we did, I did obedience classes. I did agility classes. I did nose work. I did tricks classes. I did rally. I did all kinds of training classes with my other dogs. And then, and, and then I recognized, well, I think I need to up my skills. Sonny's going to make me be better because, because of the challenge of the fear piece and the anxiety piece. Um, you can get away with a lot of mistakes uh, with dogs. I mean, basically anybody can train a dog. I mean, five-year-olds train dogs. They, some of the best trainers I've ever met are little kids um, who teach their dogs <laughs> using treats, you know, and you go, oh, pretty cool. Um, but when you have a dog whose first re- response is to move away from you, is to avoid you, is to escape from you, the trainer, how do I change that? How do I... Um, get different behavior from him. So the first thing was recognizing that the problem was a skill deficit. That was the problem. He didn't have these skills. He didn't know how to be, he never lived in a house before. So a lot of these behaviors are, we take for granted that the dog has the skill to be in a house and not worry about things in the environment. Uh, this is some dogs, they're the opposite. They're used to being in a house, you know, if they've been hoarded or if they've just been um, not let out. So they've spent time in some of those dogs have trouble outside. They don't know how to walk. They don't know how to walk through an apartment building, get on an elevator and go down and go step out on the street where there's traffic. Um, that's again, that's a skill deficit. The other change that sort of was a big um Uh, sort of one of those aha learning moments was that I recognized that if we can change how a dog feels about something, we can often change the behavior. We often see a change in the behavior. And we know this is true. Um, You know, if you hate going to the gym, let's just, or running or something, you just, ugh, you dread Mm -hmm. it. You don't like it. Your gym going behavior is probably pretty low. If you don't like running, you probably don't run a lot. But if there was a way to change how you felt about those activities, assuming that there's no pain involved in them, um, if there was pain involved, we'd address the pain. Um, And we do that with our fearful dogs as well, except the pain that we address is is, uh, a fear. But if I can change how you feel about, say, going to the gym, then there's a good chance that you'll go to the gym more. Uh, So that was the other piece of this. And when you're dealing with fear, it's a huge piece. And and I often will say to people without trying to be, I don't want to be flippant about it, but when they say my dog is afraid, I say, well, stop scaring them. Number one, just right. you have to stop scaring them, uh, and it's not, mm-hmm. it's easier said than done. Um, so those were the the ways that I changed my thinking about the dog. So one was it's a skill deficit; get better at training. The other is address the emotion, and then hopefully we'll start to see. And I did behavior that reflected that change in the emotion like yippee the lady's here with the frisbee yay (laughs) and rather than oh no the lady you know or the man or the person um so that that's what i meant by changing the way you think about 
the behavior because the first behavior that we have to change when we work with any animal is our own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I-, I love that you listed a whole bunch of behaviors that you wanted Sunny to learn because one thing that we always say to our clients is instead of making a list of everything you don't want your dog to do, you should start making a list of everything that you do want them to to learn. And I think for a lot of people, that is kind of mind-blowing. But obviously, whether it's through your training or through other experiences you've had in your life, you just instinctively knew, okay, if I just get these four behaviors, that's going to make his life and my life uh, a little bit easier to live alongside. But I think that's something that is a huge mindset shift that we try to always say instead of a whole list of like, as long as he doesn't do these, I'm going to be happy. Well, let's talk about all the list of the things that you want them to do. And I think people, you know, really see things in a little bit of a different way in terms of training. Exactly. Um, And to me, it was really um, the mindset um, change of thinking about your dog. Hey, your dog is actually not stupid or they're not stubborn. They're not just overreacting for no reason. We just need to come to acceptance that the dog is fearful in these situations and really offer them a lot of um, space and empathy for them to to just be. And then, you know, I love how you stated as well, just in terms of the the steps that we take. So first we can prioritize, like, what do we need to start with? And then take a look at the picture, find different perspectives, and then get to our training plan with the actual behaviors. And actually a change of perspective is, hey, this is just a behavior. It's not something that has to be overwhelming and it can be done for sure. I just need to get started somewhere and then, you know, I can be on the on a track now obviously there can be (laughs) ups and downs while we're on that track but while we're continuously moving together with a training plan I think that's so helpful and one last thing I wanted to add here is for me the fact that you know your your book and your approach in it came at a time where obviously you know punishment and dominance was still so prevalent in our society or how we looked at training Um, and I think that in this way was just so groundbreaking that we can look at the picture from a different way and come at it with so much empathy so thank you for that (laughs) yeah it was um there were people certainly there were people out there there were trainers out there who were already clued in you know to this but you're absolutely right that we still have that sort of pack leader dominance perspective that was going on um, and and you know it's not completely gone unfortunately because it's a very it's a very sticky concept people tend to like it um, it seems like mm-hmm. an easy solution I, when I I basically think of uh, working with these dogs I have there's three pieces they're not separate and they overlap quite often but they're important and the first one is, the dog needs to feel safe. I'm not going to work with an animal. I can't work with an animal who does not feel safe. Number one, they need to feel safe. And so whatever I need to do to help that animal feel safe is what I'm going to do. The other, another step is I want to create good associations with whatever it is in their world that they need to interact with. So I think of it mm-hmm. as... Um, turning them into gamblers in that they're always going to bet that good things are going to happen because I create those associations. The lady, oh, that, you know, she's going to throw a Frisbee. I, you know, that's what my border collie had learned that every single person could throw a Frisbee. So whenever he saw a person, he would just bring them a Frisbee. And we could assume that he was feeling pretty good about seeing people because they can throw Frisbees. Um, we see this with with sort of healthy dogs, uh, behaviorally healthy dogs. They see people and they think, huh, I wonder if this person has a treat in their pocket. Let me sit down in front of them and see if they do. And we, we right. can they've made good associations with people. And then the third thing is give them the skills so that 
What do you need to do now that you know people have treats in their pocket or that people give out treats or that people throw Frisbees? What can you do to get the person to give you the treat or throw you the Frisbee? And then, of course, that's where we say where we start teaching the appropriate behaviors where you can sit, you can lie down, you can do what, you know, whatever is the appropriate behavior. So those three pieces are basically they form the foundation of all the work Mm -hmm. that we do with these dogs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I love that you talk about safety because I think we could all understand, you know, let's say we had a very critical parent or a critical, you know, um, significant other. Uh, I think we all understand when someone is overly critical to us or uses punishment on us, our, our focus goes so much more toward not making mistakes. As, as a result of that, uh, it's, it's harder to take chances. And I think a lot of the times getting over fear is about, okay, I, I haven't been there, but I feel safe, so I'm going to venture there and see what happens as opposed to if you're just constantly stressed out, you're not even going to try to go over there and learn something new or overcome your fears in that way. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it is, it is a, a, a really great uh, observation. And, and I... I call it the the beautiful flow of experimental behavior. And that when you have an animal that's willing to experiment with new behavior, they're willing, they're, they're able to vary their behavior. Well, then you can basically teach them to do practically anything because you can get that beautiful uh, range of behavior that a dog is capable of, of of performing. So yeah, it really is true that that's what, that's what punishment does. And that's what fear does is it makes your behaviors very limited and, uh, mm-hmm. your, your ability to, like you say, take that chance is, mm-hmm. isn't there. And then it's harder, mm-hmm. uh, to train new behaviors. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I, and I love what you talk about in the book about trust too, because let's say, Safety is going to get them to a certain level of experimentation, but maybe the last 10 yards is happening because you're there and they know that whatever happens, you're there and they trust you and nothing's going to happen to them. So they're able to go that last 5% toward overcoming their fears that maybe they might not have been able to do on their own, no matter how safe they felt. Yes. And, and that is a type of pairing that we actually become that uh, something in the environment that becomes a predictor for life getting better, for improving mm-hmm. conditions, as opposed to being something in the environment that becomes a predictor for worsening conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. just you wait till, you know, your mother gets home or your father gets home and you think, oh, no. When they, you know, when that person comes home, my life is not going to be better. Whereas when we are around, the dog really does learn. We become uh, paired with that improving conditions. And it is a very, very, uh, we call it trust. You know, we can call it trust the dog. But basically the dog is learning. I can predict that I will be safe because I when the lady or the man or the person is around, nobody's going to come and touch me because it just doesn't happen because I use my verbal language to say to people, don't touch my dog, but please leave him alone. I make rules for other people around my dog and, and those people follow those rules or I leave the situation because I don't want my dog um, to, you know, either lose that trust or, not really learn that bad things don't usually happen when the lady's around. So that is a very important piece of it. And when you, if you use punishment, if you do anything that the dog finds aversive or scary or unpleasant, then it's going to be harder to get that. And in some cases with really traumatized, fearful dogs, you won't get it because they are just, too sensitive to even a slightly raised voice 
in some cases. And I think that's such a great point that maybe is not being stressed enough when it comes to fearful dog of really us being um, there to protect them and to make them feel safe around other people because oftentimes we may feel the social pressure and we don't want to be rude or seem mean and you know we allow interactions that we know are not good or comfortable for our dogs but really making a decision and sticking up to it, being our dog's um, spokesperson when we know that those are the things that we need to protect them from. Is there another mindset change that, you know, it's it's good to come in peace with and really stick with because then we can create that safety that you talk about. So, yeah, that's such a great point. One of the the ways that I will explain it to people is that it's something that they will recognize when they have put in a lot of work into teaching their dog to behave a certain way in a situation, that their efforts, they will be less likely to want those efforts to be negatively impacted because of some stranger who wants to come over and pet their dog. And it's sort of like if you create this beautiful porcelain vase and you, you just you just love it, you put all this time and effort and energy into creating this beautiful thing and somebody says, oh, my toddler would like to hold it. You know, can you, you say, um, no, <laughs> no, because the chances are... <laughs> You know, they're going to drop it. And so, you know, no offense here. They can, you know, here, they can do something else. Um, but no, they cannot hold it. So you start to feel that way about your dog. And it does become, and it's something that you practice. Because we don't mm-hmm. need to be mean. We don't need to be unkind or offensive to people mm-hmm. to say, you know, actually, no, you know, you can't, you shouldn't touch him or, you know, whatever. Um, And, and sometimes we come up with little scripts, you know, and we say, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, whatever we say, we come up with as a way to sort of, um, you know, oh, no, thank you very much. Yes, he is beautiful. He is handsome. Thank you. Gotta go, you know, (laughs) and, and Mm -hmm. we leave or, you know, we come up with, with some other way of um, basically changing the behavior of, the person we're interacting with without feeling bad and rude. Cause most people mean, well, you know, they're not, they don't mm-hmm. know. They like dogs. That's why they're doing it. So mm-hmm. we don't need to be, even though we may feel frustrated with the fact that they, they want our porcelain vase um, and we're just not going to let them <laughs> have it, um, you know, but, but we can come up with that. But yes, it is. You, you do begin to advocate uh, for your dog. Yeah, I mean, one thing we really loved in your book were just how compelling some of your stories were. Like, you're so good at metaphors and comparing things to just to get that mindset change that we're talking about. So, you know, you talked about your ski instructor husband. You talked about your father and the diving board, which is such an amazing story. Uh, and the woman with the palm chi mix. And so all those stories really illustrate the idea that getting people over their fears is an incremental process. But in our culture, for some reason or another, you know, we have these phrases of tossing people into the deep end and getting people to face their fears. You know, why do you think that idea persists? Our, our culture is so rife with those kinds of statements. Um, I don't know. Do you have a sense of why that is? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not really sure. I, I think some of it just has to do with we hear it. People talk about it. That's the language we use. Um, it is, we tend to do a lot of kind of pop psychologizing. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm using it. Psychologizing. It's a good word. It's a good you know, word. Where we, you know, we, we, we're just sort of, we do that. We like that. We like to come up with, um, like you say, we, we are, our language, uh, we use metaphor. We use analogies, so getting over things, breaking out of our shell, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, even things like building confidence. You know, we use language to sort of try to describe 
the behavior that we're seeing. And, and basically it is, it's a fictional narrative is what it is. We make it up. It's, it is a way that we talk about behavior and it's just a habit. And it's a habit we're into because we are humans and we love it so much that we actually have whole sections of libraries devoted to it. And it's called fiction. We love creating <laughs> fiction. We can't help ourselves from creating fiction. You know, the dog does this thing. Well, why does he do it? Well, it must be because he thinks that you're going to do this or do that. Or, uh, you know, we, we, we just, that's what we do. That's what humans mm -hmm. do. We're very good at it. We like to do it. It's reinforcing for us. Um, and so we keep doing it. We can't help but do it. We cannot help but but look at a dog, look at anybody, and try to analyze it. Hmm. Well, I think he's learned that you are um, his mother, and he's going to look at you and blah, blah, whatever it is. And it, mm -hmm. it certainly makes sense. I mean, we can make it make sense because that's we're all so good at that. We, we are a verbal species, and so we can come up with all of that. But for the uh, uh, for the animal it, it's it, it just doesn't work the same way and that part of it is that we have to basically go back to what behaviors we can observe and how can we change them i think a lot of people understand the notion of giving your dog a treat when he or she does something that you want, like sitting on cue, that makes sense to people. Hey, my dog sat, that's what I wanted. I'm going to give him a treat. Um, but let's say you're walking down the street with your dog and he or she without warning and suddenly starts barking at a bicyclist, another dog, a person due to fear. And you didn't anticipate it. It just happened. What do you recommend that a dog parent do immediately after that reaction that simultaneously makes the dog less scared, but also works toward hopefully reducing that behavior for next time without punishing them. Because I think for a lot of people, they say, if I can't punish them in that exact moment, how am I supposed to communicate to my dog that this is not a behavior that I want or like? Am I just supposed to do nothing? I think a lot of people feel that way. And I'm wondering what your advice in those circumstances are. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a great question. And we do there's two types of learning. One type of learning is my behavior changes the environment in a way that I like or I don't like. That's either good for me or bad for me. So let's say um, I, while the people are eating, I bark at them. They might give me a treat. Right. So barking at the people is going to get me a treat. Yay. I am going to bark at the people and I am going to get a treat. When we are dealing with fear, an upset dog, a scared dog, we're dealing with a different kind of learning. And that learning is one thing is a reliable predictor of another thing occurring in the environment. Yay or oh no. Um, mm -hmm. When you have a dog who is responding due to fear, what we want to change is how the dog feels about the thing that they are afraid of. If I can change how you feel about something, your behavior is likely to change along with it. So how do we change how they feel about things? Well, it one thing becomes a reliable predictor of another thing. So if every time you see the golden retriever that terrifies you for whatever reason, if every if that golden retriever becomes a reliable predictor of something wonderful, Every, I don't know what it is. Every time I see that golden retriever, the, 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 the human gives me steak. I mean, this is amazing. I don't know. You know, I, I hate that. I hate that golden retriever. But wait a second. 
there's steak coming. <laughs> well, wait a minute. I'm, I, you know, and so long as the golden retriever doesn't get too close, right? As long as we can keep, we can sort of find the bubble, find the space, find the duration. Cause sometimes it's a distance thing. Sometimes it's a duration thing. Like I can look, I can deal with that golden retriever looking at me for two seconds. That dog looks at me for three seconds and I am going ballistic on him. Right. But I can take two seconds. And if and if at that when that dog looks at me, suddenly it predicts that the the the, the human is going to give me chicken. Oh, I'm going to start changing how I feel. Yeah, I, I think a, a lot of people in our audience generally get the idea of I want to change these feelings. So I'm going to make chicken rain from the sky when they see that other dog. And I think they're very successful when. They could obviously catch the dog before the dog starts barking or growling or lunging and redirect them so they never have that emotional experience. But I think what trips up some of our audience is the dog reacts is in this like emotional state and then you just see some of them trying to just shove some chicken into their mouth and the dog is just not having it because like hey i i'm still in this barking spree and so some of them say see positive reinforcement doesn't work he's not even taking my chicken right now so i guess for those that look at that and say as evidence that positive reinforcement doesn't work i guess what I want to know, you know, and both of you guys chime in is the dog is already in the midst of like a panic attack barking spree. What do you do in the next five seconds to remedy this situation as best you can without making the situation worse for yourself and for the dog? Get the heck out of Dodge. <laughs> That's if, what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just if you are drowning, then is it's neither the time to say kick your feet, <laughs> kick your feet, <laughs> you know, which which would be you know training, teaching you how right. to change, you know, a physical behavior, and it may be the fact the point where we can't change the emotional response because the dog is just. It, they're just, it's too much going on. So we basically get the heck out of Dodge and say, guess what? This is, if I keep putting this dog in this situation, I am likely to continue to see this response and that doesn't make any sense. I need to, to find a way to help the dog learn that the thing is a predictor of good things, not you know, scaring, you know, a, a potential predictor of, of something that I'm afraid of. When somebody's drowning, you know, it's not the time to say to them, kick your feet. They just want to stop drowning. Yeah. yeah. yeah just Stopping like, drowning yeah. is the number one priority at that point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. can... I can add on here um, as well because it just became um, so apparent, um, again, just the lack of understanding that sometimes we do need to create a training setup where we expose the dog in a careful manner to those triggers and stimuli instead of, you know, having to wait for them or the situation to occur and then work on damage control. Um, it just maybe is not a part of the white cultural uh, view of things, but create a training setup where, okay, I, I took a note, you know, this distance or this intensity or this duration was way too much. I will ask my friend with their dog or with their bicycle or whatever the fear is um, to help me next time. And maybe we can meet at a field where we can have so much distance and space between us and we're going to create some care careful exposure so that we can start to create that association with something that is actually positive and then start to implement it more and more into the real world. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, when somebody's drowning, it's not the time to be shouting at them, kick your feet, kick your feet. Yep. You know, it's, you know, throw them a, throw them a life ring and get them out and then yeah. think about what is your plan? And exact, you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. And, and would you say when you get out of Dodge uh, at a distance far away, do you just start treating them 
once you could see that they're not fearful anymore or do you have them do a certain queue? Um, what happens immediately after the get out of Dodge situation? Yeah, well, you just gave two examples of what could happen, uh, but either one of those things where I might say, okay, now we've walked away and now I'm going to give you treats. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. You don't have to do anything. You've just walked away. You've left. You know, maybe I can salvage some of this, you know, if, if you can eat the food after that. Uh, because the goal, I mean, ultimately what we're trying to do when we are trying to change an emotional response. So we're doing two things. We're changing an emotional response and we are, which we can't see except through the dog's behavior. We're assuming a certain emotional response, like they're wagging their tail, they're eating the food easily, or they're really grabbing at the food, or they won't eat the food, right? We're always inferring an emotional response, and we're trying to guess what it is um, through their behavior. And then the other thing is, is we are we are looking for specific behaviors. So one could certainly do either thing, which is, okay, now you're far enough away from that scary thing. Now I want you to look at me or I want you to walk with me a few steps and then I'm going to pay you. Yeah, and I would I would love to add on here also just the factor for measuring our success can be um, seeing how long it takes the dog to recover after they've had a reaction. So if we're seeing that before, you know, the dog would still be, um, whether it's fearful or overexcited, riled up after, you know, long after the trigger has moved away. As we work um, with our dog and we have a training plan in place, we're teaching them some skills and ways to cope in those situations. We should also be seeing a decrease um, in that time. Like we've encountered a trigger and even even if it was in a way that wasn't planned and we might have experienced a reaction, hey, it only took him, you know, a few seconds to just turn around away from the trigger or add a little distance. And now we're able to move on. And I do think that it's important for people to celebrate those small, small wins, mm -hmm. because even though it doesn't seem like something big, it is an improvement and it is a way that we can measure the dog's emotional response or the aftermath of it, of them being able to just quickly, um, you know, disengage and kind of go back to a more normal mm -hmm. level to um, emotional state. I love that. Yeah. So I want to be mindful of time. Uh, we did uh, reach out on Instagram uh, to see if anyone had any questions for you. So I just wanted to kind of, you know, rapid fire, give you some practical questions that some people have and just kind of get your take on them. So this uh, comes from Emily from Positively Pets. They're a dog trainer in the Denver area. Uh, do you think all fearful, reactive, aggressive dogs should be muzzle trained? Because I think for her, if she encounters another dog owner that doesn't know that they shouldn't come up to the dog or, you know, maybe a dog is off leash with poor recall, you know, they obviously don't want to allow their dog to potentially bite another dog. So would you say that that's something that they should have some training in at least to have in the back pocket? Sure. Sure. I mean, it's always good. And the reason, I mean, I think the main reason to do it is for when we as trainers mess up. So if I think, oh, I think the dog is going to be fine, but I'm wrong, we've got a backup because I've made a mistake. Mm -hmm. So yes, I mean, I think muzzle training makes a lot of sense for every single dog because if, they go, if they're injured and you take them to the vet, um, they're going to get a, they're often going to get some kind of muzzle stuck on their face. And mm -hmm. rather than have that occur when they're in a, you know, injured or, you know, when it's really going to scare them, they learn, Oh, I just wear this muzzle. And it's a good backup for when we make mistakes. Um, the only, the thing I just always remind people is it's not an excuse to throw your dog in the deep end mm -hmm. just because they're wearing a muzzle. It's kind of that, 
it's like the backup. Yeah. Like if I get this wrong, I'm wearing a life preserver. You right. know, I'm not going to drown and the dog isn't going to bite somebody. So I think, and it's a great, sure, why not? It's a fun behavior to teach a dog because you could teach them to stick their muzzle, their face in the muzzle for food. Right. So it's a fun behavior to train. Great. Yeah, it's uh, a great, great question. Yep. Uh, our next question comes from Bryn. Uh, she wants to know how to reduce reactivity when it's happening inside the house and unexpectedly. Like, for example, instead of barking at a dog while out on a walk, they're barking at a dog that they could see through their window inside. You know, what are some tips and tricks you have for a dog like that? Yeah. So there's, so we can either reduce the stimulus Right. So the stimulus being the dog outside, which is causing the barking. So we cover windows. Um, not unusual to have people, you know, just really covering up the windows now, because if you're not there and the dog is barking at things out the window, you can't do anything. Right. You can't train the dog. So, you know, we have to minimize the behavior. The other thing is we can if it's happening when we're around, we can change what the other dog predicts. So in my house, the UPS truck that pulls up in the driveway that gets, well, I, don't, I don't have as many dogs anymore, but I used to have a lot of dogs and it would send everybody into barking. Oh my gosh, there's a truck in the driveway. Something they must bark it. I must bark at whatever's outside the window. Well, that became the cue to go to the lady and get chicken, mm -hmm. you know, cause she's gonna, whenever that thing is out there, if we go to the lady, we're going to get, we run to the fridge <laughs> and we, we get chicken. And so if there is a, a negative emotional response, like if part of the barking is fear-based or they're upset by seeing the, the thing outside, we're going to maybe be able to change that because, because it becomes a predictor of getting something wonderful. So um, I've certainly had dogs who they look out the window, they're dogs, they bark, they give a little bark and then they run to the lady. Got to go find the lady, lady, lady. There's a, there's, there's a truck outside. Come on. We have to go to the fridge and get chicken. And that's what <laughs> we do. Uh, and the last question we have is from Alexis Sabrina. Uh, and I have a follow-up question here, so it's, it's perfect timing. So how can you tell the difference between a dog that is aggressive and a dog that just hasn't been socialized and does not know how to play nicely? And as a follow-up question to that, what percentage of, do of dogs do you believe are fearful or reactive because something horrible must have happened to them compared to lack of socialization, genetics, et cetera? Yeah, those are good questions. So the first one, which was, how can you tell the difference between yeah. between uh, the, uh, a aggressive dog and a dog that you know just doesn't just hasn't been socialized yeah. and so it's a little yeah. awkward and doing weird things. Yeah, yeah. So it sometimes it's very hard because the behavior looks the same. You know, a dog straining at the end of the leash barking can often look the same. Um, so if you don't have a history there, it's hard to know, you know, mm -hmm. so, so sometimes it's hard to know whether or not that dog that's going ballistic at the end of the leash wants to go up and, you know, fight, is going to fight with them. They're scared or there's, you know, which is often the thing, they're scared of them and they, they get that arousal and then they, they start fighting or they're just so aroused that they want to go up and sniff them mm -hmm. and they're out of there. I just need to sniff you. Um, so it's hard to tell. So you're looking for a little bit of history. Does the dog have a play history with other dogs, right? So some people will say to me, oh, no, he's got friends. Oh, he goes to daycare. Oh, okay. So he, he has a history with other dogs. So that going ballistic at the end of the leash might just be a skill deficit, mm -hmm. right? The dog is just like, it's a frustration, yep. you know, I must play. So I'm just going to teach you to do something else. Um, so it's not always easy. So you, you just have to be, you know, you take a history of the dog. Does this dog have a history? Oh yes. He came from a hoarding situation and, you know, was with his siblings and, you know, now I have the dog. So, well, it might just be that the dog is frustrated. And is so, you know, I want to go play, I want to go play, um, rather than get away from me, get away from me, get away from me, because they both look the same when mm -hmm. the dog is at the end of the leash acting, you know, bonkers. Yep. Um, so, 
you know, there's that one. And then, you know, so there's that. So it's a, a um, either way, we just want to teach the dog, look at me, come over to me, leave that thing alone. This mm-hmm. is the new behavior yep. you know, that you're going to do is I'm going to teach you, you know, because you can't play with every dog you see, even if you're happy to see them. You can't just think you're going to play. And we see this in dog training classes. Dogs who have gone to daycare think they come into a room and they're going to play with every single dog in the room. Yeah, that's And that's true. not what's going to happen because we're, you know, right, we're in a training class and, you know, maybe there'll be playtime, but basically your owners are here to figure out how to train you. So sorry, buddy, you're going to have to stay, <laughs> you know, you can't play with that other dog. Um, so sometimes we see that, you know, where the dog is just frustrated. It's a frustrated player. So the, we just have to, you know, teach the dog, sorry, buddy, this is what, we're going to make it worth your while, mm-hmm. certainly, but you're going to learn, you know, we use positive reinforcement, we use food, or, you know, we use treats here. Don't pay attention to me. I got the steak, mm-hmm. right? You know, good dog for sitting. So that was the, the one question. And then there was another follow-up question that you had that was a good one too. Yeah. What I, percentage I've of dogs do you them. believe are fearful or reactive um, because something horrible must have happened to them compared to a lack of socialization, genetics, etc. Yeah, yeah, it's it's real. It's really hard to say because um, often when we get them, we don't know, you know, and it looks the same, you know. So it always it looks the same um, whether regardless, you know, whether it's inexperience and I just don't know what to do and, I, and I'm sort of past this, that period when they needed to learn to feel comfortable with something um, or, you know, somebody, they got into a fight, you know, sometimes it's, it's a learning deficit and they, they just didn't get the conditioning and the learning when they needed to and that little window of opportunity is gone versus something bad happened to you and so that's your learning history so it's 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 hard to tell um sometimes but we don't need to know that's the beauty of this kind of training we don't need to know we it's helpful if we know but recognizing that we don't we just go back to good training and you've been you know like what you've been talking about is we we give you skills we teach you that when you see that other dog chicken falls from the sky how do you feel about seeing that other dog now buddy oh i feel pretty good thank you very much <laughs> you know i i happen to like seeing that dog um how do you feel about seeing that little kid who every time you see that little kid you get balls thrown for you i feel pretty good about little kids who throw balls that's great that's learning um you know so there's that you know that feeling they we learn to change their emotional response and then you know the other piece is hey you know what when you see that other dog if you put your butt on the ground I happen to have some steak that you will get for putting your butt on the ground, right? So that there, we're always overlapping the learning, the classical conditioning, the opera conditioning. They never happen separately. They're always happening at the same time. But we as trainers just sort of learn to nuance it and say, well, I think right now I'm not going to worry so much about you sitting because mm-hmm. I'd like you to sit, but really I want you to feel good. Right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make that little kid on the tricycle become a reliable predictor of chicken. Every time you see a kid on a bicycle, chicken is going to happen. How are you going to feel about the next? And you see it, you know, you see the dog go, wait a minute, there's a kid on a bike. Chicken? Yes, chicken. Here's your chicken, buddy. I love seeing kids on bike. Bring them on. Debbie, Debbie. So you know, those are the... Debbie, you're making me hungry. Uh, I feel like it's like almost dinner time for me right now. I, I feel like I want some chicken yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah, there um, you go. Good. Good. You've been classically conditioned. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I would love to kind of wrap it up here, but I, I would love to open the stage up for you. Uh, are there certain things that you would love to plug, whether it's your website or your book? So just love to have, open this up for our audience. Well, well, thank you so much for the opportunity, and I will let you go because it is getting close to dinner time, probably. If you're starting to think about chicken, um, and so much, but no, thank you. Um, I, you know, I do have. I've got my fearfuldogs.com website, which is just out there to help folks understand how to work with fear-based behaviors. Um, 
and you know again you know i'm always looking for folks like you in areas so that if i do people contact me with fearful dogs you know if i can get them into the hands of good trainers that understand this how important it is mm -hmm. to be um, to use positive reinforcement and to use classical conditioning to create good feelings about things. I mean, that's really um, what I'm always just looking for is, um, you know, for that. So, um, oh, fearfuldogs.com, there's lots of information on there. And um, yeah, and thank you for your, the good work you're doing and giving me the opportunity to talk endlessly and <laughs> on and on about the thing I love the best, which is just um, behavior and training. You know, Leah, the pleasure was all ours. Thank you so much for all of your expertise and all your stories. Uh, it's been such a joy for us. Absolutely. We appreciate your time and we appreciate your sharing your perspectives with us. We have so many practical tips and ideas and mindset changes that we can um, share about and implement. Hopefully for those listeners who live with fearful dogs, this was felt helpful and yeah we 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 had a blast chatting with you yeah thank you so much debbie well thank you and thank you for the good work that you're doing and getting the word out to folks i appreciate Just listen to the Family Pups podcast with your hosts, Tanya and Charles Lim. Subscribe to our podcast to catch our latest episodes. If you like the show, please make sure to share and review us on your favorite podcast app. And for links to anything we mentioned in the episode, check out our show notes. And don't forget to visit familypups.com slash podcast to listen to past episodes of the Family Pups podcast, including episodes on separation anxiety with Melania Demartini Price, Unpredictable Aggression with Michael Shikashio, Fearful Dogs with Debbie Jacobs, Puppy Socialization with Marge Rogers and Eileen Anderson, and many, many more.